morning, everybody. How are you doing? Good, good, good. So we're in Luke 24, the last two weeks of our question series. We've been doing this for a while. And uh, so I'm, I'm excited about today. Uh, we're going to be looking at, this is one of my favorite stories um, in, in the, the Gospels. Uh, it's a story that, that's interesting. It's, uh, there's a little bit, there's almost a parallel in John, uh, but really Luke's the only where this story shows up. And so we're going to be uh, we're going to be looking at that today. Um, and as we we get there, um, you know, a few weeks ago I talked about the difference in uh, optimists and pessimists, um, and it looked like that sparked some good conversation between people. And so uh, here's another one: uh, how like if, like how many of you uh, love to pack when you go on a trip? Anyone? Does anyone love it? Every now and then you come, okay, every now and then you come across those people that are like, I love laying everything out, I love organizing it, I love, check. anybody make a checklist for when they're packing and they check it off? Okay, MC, that doesn't surprise me at all. Okay, yeah, Christine, totally, totally. So, um, so I'm, I'm not that way, okay? So my wife and I, as, as God typically finds humor in, uh, put two opposites together when it comes to packing uh, in our marriage. Because when Anna packs, and when I pack, we define necessities as two very different things, right? Like when I go to the beach, I do not think it's a necessity to bring a clean pair of clothes for every day. I need like total four pairs of clothes, one of those being like a bathing suit, okay? And I'm clean. You guys are looking at me. I promise I'm clean. I'm like weird. I shower normally twice a day. That's a weird thing about me. But... Like, when it comes, like, I don't need, like, I just don't need that many clothes. Whereas my wife, for whatever weird reason, thinks it's a necessity to have clean clothes every single day while on vacation. I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me. Right? Like, most of the time, I forget to pack a toothbrush. Not because, and my dentist is in the room, sorry, Dr. Townsend. Um, not because I don't think it's important, but because I just don't think about it with packing. You know, it's at my house. I don't think about taking it with me anywhere. Normally, thankfully, my wife brings two. Um, and so I'm, I'm covered there. But when it comes to, like, necessities, like, how do you define necessities? I was even talking to our toddler this week, and I was like, Cora, what are some things that are, like, you have to have every day? And, and you know, it was funny to hear her say things because they're things that I wouldn't think about, right? Like, mostly it was relational. Mostly, it, you know, had to do with, like, caring and for each other. Whereas for me, I'm like, necessity is, like, coffee and, and then, like, some food and, you know, like, and, like, a quiet space to, to, before I go home, you know, to toddlers and things like that. Our necessities were two totally different things. So all of us define, like, like for the most part, we kind of have those, like, what we have to have in life. We, we would define those the same. But, but by and large, I think necessities, like, when it comes to what we're willing to give on or, or expectations that we take into relationships or we take into, like, a, an adventure or even going on vacation, a lot of times the way we define necessities um, end up being what our expectations are. And so what we're going to look today is a story. The question of Jesus we're looking at is smack dab in the middle of the story, and it really, he's getting to the bottom of some people's expectations. And so for us today, I'm excited to look at this question. I'm excited to look at this story. I'm going to read through the whole story. It's a little bit of a haul, and then we're going to go back through it, okay? So we're in Luke 24. We're starting in verse 13, and we're going to go through verse 35. So, so just context, a little bit of context, uh, uh, Jesus was crucified, dead for three days. He rose from the grave 
Mary, Martha, some other women went to the tomb. They didn't find Jesus there. Spoiler for Easter, if you're planning on coming back in March. Uh, but Jesus wasn't in the tomb. Uh, so they didn't find him. An angel appeared and said, hey, who you're looking for isn't here. Okay, so they went back, told, some, told the disciples. Uh, a few of them ran to the tomb. Uh, they, they corroborated the story. And now you got two guys, two disciples, and we know one's a guy, two disciples uh, that are now walking away from Jerusalem after the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and that's where we're picking up the story. Okay, so verse 13, that very day, the day of the resurrection, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women in our company, they amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us, they went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. That's our question for the day. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, did, our hearts, uh, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and opened to us the scriptures? They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Okay, so... Uh, we really kind of get four parts of the stories here, and we're going to look at it. So the first few verses, it's interesting that the day, you know, because the question kind of arises, like they, in Jerusalem, um, that what they thought was going to happen didn't happen, and so they're going to Emmaus. And so uh, they're going to Emmaus, and, and it's interesting, it says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Uh, this would go back to like Isaiah chapter 6, all right? So you got to remember, just to re- remind us, okay, uh, the disciples, they would have been, been Jewish, uh, they would have known the prophets. They would have known the, the, the first five books of the Bible, the, the Psalms, the, the prophets, all those things really well. And so when Luke is using really intentional language here to say their eyes were kept from seeing him, because they would have, like, if you're reading this with, with, the, with the full Bible in mind like Jesus did, uh, you would have instantly thought Isaiah 6, okay, which is, which is a lot of times we like to use that because, you know, Isaiah, he appears before God, he says, here I am, send me, which sounds really noble. And then God says, okay, I will, but I'm going to send you to people that aren't going to listen, and they're not going to believe anything you say. 
which is a, so when you think like, when, you know, you're like, hey, I'm going to do the Isaiah 6 thing, just know that's a really hard task, because it doesn't, like, it's kind of a bummer how it, how the ministry ends, you know, um, so anyways, that's a side note, but he says, God says, he says, literally, I'm going to send you to a people, they're going to have eyes, but they're not going to see, they're going to have ears, but they're not going to hear, and so basically what he's saying is, um, when the Messiah comes, when Jesus comes and does this thing, he fulfills what the prophets say in a lot of ways. Because even though he did everything he was supposed to do, the scripture said and God sent him to do, people still didn't understand and they didn't believe because they didn't have eyes to see what actually happened. So, which by the way, if you're following along online or in the back, Isaiah is one of the books of the Bible that you can write down on your, on your notes. And so it was spiritual blindness, not actual blindness, that caused um, their reasons for not being able to see. And, and before we're too hard on them, this is just a, just a good kind of, just to speak to the heart for a minute, this is a good warning for those of us who have grown up in really close proximity to Jesus, but maybe haven't seen him for who he is yet. Now, these, are, these are disciples, they were in the room when the women came back from the tomb and said that Jesus had risen. They saw, you know, Peter and John race to the tomb and look, come back and say that it's true. They were part of that crew. So they were close. Talk about proximity to Jesus. I mean, these guys were, they didn't miss Sunday school. You know, they were in church every Sunday. But they still weren't able to see Jesus for who he was. And before, you know, we can't cast any stones because we do that a lot, right? We have expectations that we cast on other people. Like, how important are first impressions? Like, super important. Right? Like how many of you guys, if there's like a like super popular TV show and, and everybody's talking about how much they love it and you watch one episode and you're like, yeah, it's not for me. And you never try it again. Right? Happens all the time. We carry around ideas of people all the time. And this is one, I, so I was preaching at a, at, a, um, at a student conference a few years ago and I was in a church and, and I saw this picture of Jesus and this is how most of us would probably picture Jesus. Can we get that picture up there? Yep, so I took that with my iPhone. I, you know, so this is what I call Anglo Jesus. Um, you know, nice, fair skin, blue-eyed, light-haired Jesus. Um, this was uh, painted, it's called the Head of Christ. It was painted by Warner Salmon in the 50s. It's sold over 5 million copies around, you know, around the world, you know, on, on one thing or another. And so it's interesting because when we think Jesus, you know, this, like I said, this is in a church. We think Jesus. This is kind of the perception we have of Jesus. And that, I mean, you know, all things being equal, most of us, that's the only picture we've seen or thought about Jesus. But it's interesting. In 2002, uh, there was a group of New Testament scholars. And uh, them, they partnered uh, with BBC. They partnered with a group of archaeologists. And they got rights to go into like, a, like right around a thousand tombs and crypts all around Palestine uh, for people that were buried in the first century. So buried about the same time that Jesus would have walked on the earth. And so they scanned, you know, it's like crazy how they can do technology. They scanned uh, 3D images, took DNA samples and stuff. And out of those like thousands of, of skulls that they scanned, uh, this is what they decided the most average looking person in first century Palestine would have looked like. And like for a lot of us, it's easier to think about praying to, to Warner Solomon's head of Christ than it is to think about praying to him, if we're honest, right? Because most of us carry around some, some ideas that we have about Jesus that we formed based on our context versus who Jesus is. I'm not saying that that's, I don't think that that is Jesus. I'm just saying 
that's a better depiction than, than you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi that gets passed around on Facebook saying, share this if you love Jesus, which my grandmother actually did, so I'm allowed to make that joke, okay? Um, so anyway, so, but, but right, I mean, if we, if we put the two pictures side by side and you said, which Jesus are you more comfortable talking to if he came in the room? If we're honest, most of us would choose European-looking Jesus, the first picture, right, that we showed. So we can, we can take that off. I don't know. He's got kind of a piercing glare. I don't know if we want him. <laughs> I mean, if we're being fair. Um, but what just, I just showed that just to bring us in mind. Before we jump to the side, I, w- I want us to know and I want us to recognize that we all carry around these ideas of who we think Jesus should be, right? Or maybe we've learned who we, the way that Jesus should act for us. Because what these disciples were doing, they were leaving Jerusalem, going towards Emmaus on purpose. They were on a bit of a pilgrimage, and we're going to look at that, what Emmaus is. It's the only time that word comes up in the, in the Bible. We're going to look at that in a minute, why they were going there. Um, but all, I just wanted to bring that up just so we can recognize, because all of us think that Jesus should act and should do things a certain way. And, I, and when we come in contact with who Jesus actually is, it rubs us the wrong way a lot of times, and it can kind of bum us out. Okay, so, but I want to look, look at verses 17 through 24. So um, he said to them, what's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? Which is just a great, ironic Jesus question, right? Like kind of classic Jesus. And one of them uh, named Cleopas, he said, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know these things that have happened here? Which is just super ironic because Jesus is the thing that happened there, right? Um, but then look at, uh, you know, so they kind of say the way they describe Jesus. Man, he was a Jesus of Nazareth. He was, a, he was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And, he, you know, our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, condemned to death, and they crucified him. But look at verse 21. This is, kind of the, this is kind of the kicker for us. But we had hoped. Man, but, but we had hoped. And a lot of us, uh, we find it hard to continue following Jesus. For a lot of times, like, if you're like me, you, follow, you start following Jesus, there's kind of that, like, it's, it's easy or it's just easier to, to say, you know, I'm in love with Jesus, I'm telling people about Jesus, and then, like, at some point, life just kind of happens, and, and something doesn't go quite as planned, or we have this picture in our head of the way life should work, or the way that Jesus should interact with us, and something happens, and we kind of hit that wall, and Jesus is saying, hey, what, what happened? And you say, man, like, man, I thought this was who Jesus was, but then it kind of turned out the way I didn't think, because I had hoped blank. I mean, we could all kind of fill in that blank, right? Like, man, I had hoped, I don't know, whatever. I mean, for, for, I mean, it could be any kind of expectation. For them, it was redeem. Now, if we're, like, looking for church, like a church, like, religious word, like, you, you don't need to look any farther than redeemed. I mean, it's just dripping with, like, good, good religious theology in there. Because, uh, let's, Bible trivia, we're coming up. We're going to be holidays coming up this Thanksgiving. Nice little fun Bible trivia. Anybody like Bible nerd trivia stuff? Okay, great. Here's a good one. Where's the first time redeemed comes up in the Bible? Anybody? Redeemed. It's a good word, right? We know it. Good word. And let's all, let's all, we'll do this. Say your answer out loud on three and we'll see who's right. Ready? One, two, three. Exodus. Right. Exodus. Good job. 
Good job. In Exodus. In Exodus. So what happened was uh, God's people were taken into captivity by Egypt. Right? So you know the story. Joseph, coat of many colors. He brings his family down. They multiply their living in Egypt. Um, then at some point the Pharaoh was like, whoa, like, there's a lot of these people. They're really powerful. And so let's, um, let's just make them our slaves so that we keep them from multiplying it and, and being blessed. Okay? So, so then... Eventually, after, after, after generations of slavery, um, God speaks to Moses in the burning bush, and he says, I've heard the groaning of my people, and I'm going to redeem them. Okay, so all throughout the Old Testament, when the word redeemed is used, we think of it in a, in a very strictly spiritual sense. And there is that in the Old Testament. But for the most part, redeemed was very much a reality of No, we are actually literally in exile as these people's slaves, and God is going to raise up someone to come in and wipe out our enemies and take us back to our promised home or come in and kick out the enemies literally by force so that we can have our home back. So when they think redeemed, that's what they think what happened. It's kind of that classic, like, like we've been talking about it a lot lately, but when you're looking at the Gospels, the context is like for them, for these disciples, who would have been the Egyptians? Like if they're thinking back to Exodus and they're applying it to their lives then, who would have been Egypt? It would have been Rome. It would have been the Roman Empire. And so when they thought, man, we really, like I really thought that God sent this dude, he's mighty in word and deed, he's a great prophet, we thought he was going to redeem us. Because what they had in mind, okay, so now bringing it back, bringing it back full circle, they're going to Emmaus, okay? A little more Bible nerd stuff for you. Emmaus, about 150 years before Jesus' time, Emmaus um, was just a few miles outside of Jerusalem, and it was the site of a great battle. Okay, so there's this Jewish family, pretty well known, um, translated, their names were the Hammers, uh, but in in Hebrew or Aramaic at the time, it would have been the Maccabeans. And so what happened was, um, in Emmaus, about 150 years before, um, there was this guy, it was the Assyrians, the Assyrians had, had taken uh, over Israel, okay? So this one guy named Judas Maccabeus, he raised up a, like a guerrilla militia and went and wiped out the guy, all right? So the, so the bad guy's name is Gorgias, all right? That's a great, great bad guy name. I mean, just classic bad guy name. So let me kind of read the story to you, okay? A little extra biblical history here for us. Now, Gorgias, he took 5,000 infantry and 1,000 picked cavalry, And this division moved out by night to fall upon the camp of the Jews and attack them suddenly. Men from the citadel were his guides. But Judas heard of it, and he and his warriors moved out to attack the king's force in Emmaus while the division was still absent from the camp. When Gorgias entered the camp of Judas by night, he found no one there. So he looked for him in the hills because he said, These men are running away from us. At daybreak, Judas appeared in the plain with 3,000 men. So outnumbered, I mean, this is just, come on, like this is movie stuff right here. But they did not have armor and swords such as they desired. Unarmed guys, 3,000 against 5,000 military. I mean, come on. And they saw the camp of the Gentiles, strong and fortified, with cavalry all around. And these men were trained in war. But Judas said to those who were with him, do not fear their numbers, do not fear their numbers or be afraid when they charge. Remember how our ancestors were saved at the Red Sea when Pharaoh and his forces pursued them. And now, let us cry to heaven to see whether God will favor us and remember his covenant with our ancestors and crush this army before us today. Then all the Gentiles will know that there is one who redeems 
and saves Israel. And so they did. They won the, they won the battle. They kicked the Assyrians out, and, and he was the hero. He was the hero because that's how God, they thought that's how God redeems his people. That's how he saves his people. So now, let's back up a week from Easter Sunday, right? It's Palm Sunday. Jesus, this guy who's been going around collecting a big following, doing these mighty acts of God, proclaiming the word of the Lord, he comes in triumphantly into Jerusalem. I mean, it's just like you can't make this story up any better. Everybody's thinking he's the guy. He's the guy who's going to come and save Israel. They're hailing him as their king. They're trying to make him king. And he comes in, and like what's like military 101 that you do? Well, if you're in this time in Jerusalem, right out inside the gate where Jesus would have entered, there was a tower that the Romans built because if there was any kind of king trying to come in and make himself, they had archers and they would just wipe it out right there. That's it. So like if you're Jesus and you're trying to be the king of Israel and save Israel, like what's the first military move you do? Strategy 101. Like take out that tower, right? Well, what Jesus does is he goes to the temple and he says, hey, you guys see this temple? I'm actually going to tear it down. And then in three days I'm going to rebuild it. And they all laughed at him and they made fun of him. And then for Passover, he goes up into the to the meal with his, with his closest disciples and he says, hey guys, I, I'm actually going to die. Like, I, I'm not going to be killing anyone. I'm not going to redeem you by, by killing anyone. I'm going to redeem you by dying for you. Which is just, that's not, like, not how this works, Jesus. That's not what we want. So when these guys are walking to Emmaus, they're saying, well, this guy didn't work out. Let's go back to Emmaus and we'll pray to God for redemption. See, Jesus came and he did something that they didn't even have a category for. It didn't make any sense. So they're on this pilgrimage and they're saying, hey, hey, guy, um, man, this Jesus of Nazareth, he came. And we thought he was the guy. We thought he was the one. We thought he could give us everything we wanted. Man, we had hoped that he would have done that. But he's dead. Like, what's even crazier is, like, these, these women went to the tomb and and like said he was, his body wasn't there, so like that's confusing. I mean, none of it made sense to him. So what they're doing, they're going on a pilgrimage back to Emmaus where they're like, let's just go back and collect our thoughts and get it together. And see, for them, it was an us versus them mentality. It was, it was tribalism, and it was God only works for me the way I want him to, and he doesn't work for other people. It was, it was a, a me and mine versus you and yours mentality. And, and we can say, well, that, you know, like we don't live in that ancient, like, you know, militia-driven culture. But holy cow, guys, can we not see any kind of connection between them and us today? I mean, how many of us, if we're honest, over the course of the last few elections, thought, I thought God was going to save America Man, guess we'll just go back, regroup, make a good push next time. Or you thought, man, I really thought if my kid would have just got into that college, man, then it would have worked out. Or man, if only that relationship would have panned out, or if that job would have worked out. Man, if only for the holidays everyone would come home, then I would know that Jesus 
is real and loves me, or, or he answers prayers, or whatever it is. I mean, for most of us, most of the time, if we're honest, we have these expectations that we bring to the table, and we're disappointed when that fill-in-the-blank says, but we had hoped, but I had hoped. Man, Jesus, all that sounded great. I grew up in church. I've heard the stories. I've seen miracles done, but man, I had hoped blank. I had hoped that this would have been different. I had hoped I could have kept living in that sin without getting found out. Man, I had hoped that that call wouldn't have come through. And not all of that's in our control. I recognize that. But I want to say those, those unmet expectations that we're projecting on Jesus that's coming from a theology that starts with us, not that starts with God. Because Jesus, I mean, come on, like he took the Passover bread and the blood and he said, hey, I'm going to spill this for you. And this is my blood of the new covenant. The new covenant where I'm sending my Holy Spirit to dwell in your hearts and I'm establishing a kingdom of peace and of love, and where instead of you have enemies and you kill them, you actually pray for your enemies. And when people cuss at you, you bless them. And when they abuse you, you pray for them. And what Jesus said he meant, because he showed us he meant it by dying on the cross. Instead of coming into Jerusalem and taking over the city by force, he came in and he laid his life down, and he died for the human condition. Because he knew Right? Jesus knew what was going to happen. He was there in the beginning. Right? He's created the world. He's before the foundation of the world. He said that, that God was loving him. Like he's been there since day one. The, the world was created, and, and, and it was beautiful, and it was good. It was very good, and, and humans were made to, to bear that image of love and goodness. And, like, you know, we messed it up pretty quick. And then the sons of the two people that messed it up, Cain and Abel, What's the, the next story of humans? What happened? One person lived their life at the expense of someone else for their expectations. And we've just been recreating that cycle ever since. And then Jesus comes along and he says, no, no, no. If you're going to follow me, your job is to come up with creative alternatives to the way the world does things. So instead of when your enemy cuts your ear off, Instead of retaliating, you love them. And if, and if someone who's down and out, whether you think they deserve it or not, doesn't matter. You serve them and you humble yourself to the point of a servant. When your enemies hate you, you love them. I mean, that's always been the call of, of the disciples of Jesus, to come up with those creative alternatives. So it's interesting that they're necessary and Jesus' necessary were two very different things. Because when he asks that question in uh, verse 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? They would have said, no. Like, no, it wasn't necessary. It was necessary that you do what, I th- what we thought you should do. But to Jesus, it would have been a resounding, like, yes, it was necessary. Because notice that it doesn't just say, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and die on a cross? But it, does, it goes on, right? He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? So the resurrection was what sparked 
the work of new creation, of God reversing the curse in the garden. Because Paul puts in another language later on in 2 Corinthians, he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. He's just reflecting on what Jesus did on the cross. Because if we, all throughout the rest of the Bible, all the guys reflecting on what Jesus has done, it's that work, that resurrection life where, where Jesus came and he flipped the world upside down and then he rose from the grave. It's almost like he took the curse in the garden. Anybody, I'm just thinking of this on the spot so it may not land. Anybody watch Stranger Things? It's almost like Jesus was doing the opposite of the upside down. It's like we live in the upside down and he came to bring it right. Man, I thought of that on the spot. I normally am not good. I'm normally, normally those don't land, but... Um, this is my pride, so forgive me, Father. Um, but, when, but see, okay, so, so when it comes to the resurrection, when it comes to Jesus, it's not just one thing to suffer and die. But it's without, without the resurrection, without the, and, and like, if we're honest, most of our, like, if you're like me, you grow, I grew up in a theological context, in a church life where it was always the cross, and that was it. And the cross, I don't want to downplay the importance of the cross. The cross, the blood of Jesus, we talked about that two weeks ago when we took communion, but I, but I want to, there's, there is all throughout Scripture, I mean, in the Old Testament, too. I mean, part of Isaiah, the story of Isaiah and the suffering servant, starting in, in chapter 40 and going through uh, chapter 60, the suffering servant comes, he suffers, he heals the people because of his wounds. By his, by his wounds we are healed, but then it sparks that work of the new creation, of God recreating the world. Because eventually, and then you get to Revelation, Jesus comes back to the earth that we were made for, and he makes it all new again. And we live on earth with him forever. And so, for a lot of us, that's odd, but let's just do a quick survey of Hebrews, which if you're still following notes right now, books of the Bible, uh, Hebrews is another book of the Bible. Just a few verses, just a quick survey of Hebrews as he's kind of reflecting on this, this life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 4 or chapter 4, verse 14, he says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens or ascended through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to what we believe. In chapter 5, verse 9, it says, Being made perfect through his resurrection, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Chapter 9, verse 12, it says, He entered once and for all the holy places, which is to say heaven, by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal Redemption. And then later in verse 25 of chapter 9, it says, He's able to save to the uttermost those who have drawn near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then verse tw- uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So it's the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus that makes it possible not only for us to live a life that's new and believe that we can be totally new now, but forever because of, uh, because of the, full, the full gospel, the full good news of Jesus. Because it just, if it just ended with his death, if it just ended with his death, man, he could have, he could have just killed everybody. It wouldn't make any sense. The, his, his coming back to life, his appearing to his disciples, him being literally alive right now at the right 
hand of the Father interceding for us is what makes it possible for him to say, yes, it was necessary that I do that. It was, it was the, the exclamation mark after his life and death. That's what the resurrection is. So then they're, they're going on in, in verse 28 through 31. They, they, they go and he, take, and he actually, it's interesting because it would have been a big no-no in customs in that time for Jesus to go into someone else's house and then be the one to take the, the bread and bless it. You know, I mean, that's like somebody coming into your house that like you don't know at all, and they just start like going through the pantry and, and fridge getting food out for everybody. You know, it's, it's just not, you just don't do that. But the reason why he did that is because he had to prove something. Because, um, do you know why Thanksgiving coming up this week is either something that's really, like a really good week or a really tough week? It's because meals with people are usually, a lot of times, one of the most intimate settings you'll ever share with somebody else. Sitting down, eating food, and either not being able to have that, or being able to have that, or having to have that with people you don't want to have that with, is what's going to make the Thanksgiving experience. Because it's interesting, Jesus goes through, he takes them through like the greatest Bible study anybody's ever been through, right? This is the resurrected Jesus explaining the entire Old Testament to these guys. They still didn't get it. They still couldn't recognize that it was Jesus. So it's interesting, he knew that he had to bring them into a more intimate situation for them to be able to see him. So he brings them in to the blood. I mean, this is the same, I mean, there's a good chance these guys were in the room three nights before whenever he took the Passover meal and he broke the bread and he said, this is my body that I'm breaking for you. And he passed the cup around and he said, this is my blood that I'm spilling for you. I mean, there's a good chance. So now Jesus is bringing them back to that table, reminding them why he came, reminding them that as the Messiah, as, as the suffering servant of God, his body was broken so that they can return into that intimate relationship with God that was broken thousands and thousands and generations ago. Redemption came through his sacrifice, not through his force. It came through his love, not through his hatred. It came through loving his enemy, turning expectations, turning thoughts of who he should be upside down so that he could save them to the uttermost, Hebrews tells us. So as we prepare to take the, the, um, the bread and the cup today, I know we normally only do it the first Sunday of the month, but, I mean, come on. Like, how can we not today after that story? Um, I just want to kind of just ask you um, to write down, man, um, I was following Jesus until blank. Or I ha- I, maybe you can think of a time, that intimate relationship. Maybe you are following Jesus, and that's great. And, and you're not questioning your salvation, but it's like, man, I just can't remember the last time I've like felt the presence of God. Um, let me just ask you, why? What expectation do you need to take to the cross today? What's that, but I had hoped, blank? What's that hope that you're holding on to that's not allowing you to hold on to the hope of Jesus? Um, it could be any number of things. I don't know. I would ask you. And so a lot of times we mean when we take the Lord's Supper, we talk about confession as if there's like some deep, nasty sin that you're going to die if you don't confess. And while that may be true, man, for a lot of us, it may just be a, just, a, just a simple confession of Jesus. My theology, the way I think about you has started with me. And I need to turn that around. 
And when I think of you, I need to start with you. Now, Eugene Peterson, great quote, kind of flies all over the face of, of our, the culture we live in, but it says, he said, um, my identity doesn't begin when I start to understand myself. And you, were, you were chosen by God, you were loved by God, enough to where uh, Paul said, while, even while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. All of us at one point being enemies of God have experienced and can experience the love and grace of Jesus where he sacrifices himself to, to bring you near. Not killing you to bring you near, but killing himself to bring you near. And so when we take the, the, the bread and the, the cup today, I would just ask you before you do, before you come up and grab it, and confess those, those shattered expectations, those hope, whatever that thing is that starts with you and not with God, give it to God. And then we'll come, and, and whenever you're ready, and I'll just warn you, um, things are back-ordered. There's a supply chain issue, so we have new cups, okay? So don't let anybody that freak you out. There's two things to peel off, okay? The regular ones are just, just a little housekeeping. These are gluten-free, so please don't take those unless you are gluten-free. But these other ones are non-gluten-free. Um, and so you peel off the top for the, for the bread, and then there's another little, little tab under for the cup. Okay, if you have any questions, ask your neighbor. Um, or I'll turn my mic off and show you again. But um, would you come? Let's just take a minute. Let's just take a moment and, and man, maybe through this, those expectations, that whatever that is, that, that you're, maybe you're like, you can feel yourself holding a grudge against God because you had hoped in something else. And I'll just ask you to, to embrace the reality, the grace, and the love and the mercy of Jesus today. Um, and let. Let yourself off the hook a little bit. Because if God loves you enough to die for you, man, you, can, you can forgive yourself. Okay, so let's just take a minute. Whenever you're ready, come up. You can grab your cup, sit back down at your seat, and then I'll lead us through taking the, the cup and the bread. Jesus, on the, the night that he took the Passover meal with his disciples he, he took the bread he said this is my body that was broken for you you can take the bread said, this is my blood spilled for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for loving us, loving us enough to send your son uh, to right all the wrongs we've ever done, to redeem us not by creating us to, to hate us, but creating us to love us. By redeeming us back into that love by the life, the sacrifice, and the resurrection of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that as, as we continue to worship you, that you meet us here. Holy Spirit, come. Make this time of your new covenant real to us. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.